please to open, uh, open them to Jeremiah 18. <clears throat> Jeremiah 18. Great message, uh, again entitled The Potter and the Clay, and you may have that also above your chapter. I just took it right out of the Bible. It doesn't get any uh, simpler than that because it's all about the potter and the clay. So the things that take place now here in chapter 18 probably happened during the reign of King Jehoiakim, who later on, <clears throat> chapter 36, burned Jeremiah's prophetic scrolls. The son of Jehoiakim, King Josiah, loved the Lord and he loved Jeremiah, while Jehoiakim had no love for the Lord or Jeremiah. Jehoiakim wasn't the least bit interested in what Jeremiah had to say about political or spiritual things. So now we go with Jeremiah down to the potter's house. Now for people who are difficult, who are hardened by sin and in their sin, it's hard to get them to listen to the word of God. So God has a sign for the nation of Judah. And Jeremiah uses a practical example to teach us what he's talking about. In verses 1 through 17, we have the lesson of the potter and the clay. Jeremiah was told that a message from God was waiting for him at the potter's house, where he was going right now. And as he watched the work being done at the potter's house, he became clearly aware of the potter, in verse 3, the wheel, in verse 3, and the clay, mentioned in verse 4. And as he watched the skillful hand of the potter squeeze and press the clay, he could see that a message from God was starting to take shape. And right there in front of Jeremiah's eyes, he could see that a beautiful vessel was starting to, to be formed, to, to, to take shape. And then all of a sudden, Jeremiah, to his surprise, he sees the vessel was marred. The word marred here means ruined in the hand of the potter. But the potter broke the, mar the marred vessel into a shapeless lump and started all over again. Squeezing the clay, pressing the clay, pulling on the clay. And after enough working and refining of the clay, the potter made another vessel out of it. So let's begin in chapter 18 with verses 1 through 6. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house. And there I will cause you to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was making something at the wheel. And I believe it was Sunday night, if you remember, when God told um, Jacob to go there to Egypt, and he would bless them. And I mentioned every time you read that word there, when it's pertaining to a particular place where God tells you to go, that's where you're going to get the blessing. And notice he says here twice, he says, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my words. And it's there, in that particular place where God tells you to go, that you are going to hear the word of God. And that place where we have to be is in the will of God, walking with God. In that place there, we will hear the words of God. And then verse 3 says, I went down to the potter's, and there he was. If you want to find God, you have to be where he is. He said, I went there and I found the potter's house. And as I said, Sunday night, every time you see that word there as a, point, as a, as a directive or a command of God, underline it. 
Because if you're not there, you're not going to hear or get what God wants you to have anywhere else. It must be there. So those theirs are important in the word of God. Verse 4. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord? Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. So God sends Jeremiah down to see a sermon. And let that be a lesson to us too. Sometimes you may be a sermon that people see. A living epistle. You know what? Many times we're a better witness by what we do than what we say. Because what people do a lot is watch us. They want to see a sermon. A living sermon. It's easy to say all kinds of things. But it's the way we live that says it all. And so Jeremiah, he goes down to the potter's house to see a sermon. And it was really a very simple sermon. And it's easy to figure out this very living parable Jeremiah gives us here. God is the potter. Israel is the clay here. And it's also very easy to apply this to mankind, to the human race in general, and to each individual personally. Each individual, individual is the clay. And it seems that the wheel that the clay is on represents the circumstances of life. And as we know, the wheel of life turns and turns and turns and where it stops, nobody knows. All along, God has had a purpose for Israel just like he does for you and I. On that wheel of life, God has been working out his purpose for the nation of Israel and he's been working out the plan for your life as well. But then Jeremiah says something happened to spoil God's plan. Something in Israel, a stone of stumbling or a rock of offense has marred the work of the master potter. And again, the word marred here means ruined. And God is saddened about the uncleanness in Israel's life. Things can't keep going the way that they are. What does that say about the United States of America? In this particular situation, forgiveness alone won't be enough. Judgment has to come. There's no other way except for the existing form of the nation's life to be broken and to be refined and then reshaped into another vessel, verse 4 says. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may become or be a new lump. Hey, we're just lumps. Lumps of clay. But he says, pour out the old leaven, get rid of the sin, get rid of the old life, that you may be a new lump that God can now use and form into a vessel for his use. And the process of life is seen on the wheel. Every man in every nation is present and involved because God has a purpose for men and nations. And the practical lesson here teaches us about the sovereignty of God. In verse 6, Jeremiah says, God says, can I not do with you, Israel, as this potter? Can I not just tear you apart and, and, and make you all over again? You see, clay has no plans of its own. Clay has no aspirations for service, nor reluctance to perform its given tasks. It's just clay, moldable, pliable, 
totally submissive to the will of its master. But it also teaches us about the freedom of man. The response of the clay had hindered the the potter's purpose for it. Men are free to respond to the dealings of God. If they respond positively to the master potter's touch, his purpose is achieved in making a vessel like he's planned. But if men respond negatively, God's work is marred. It's ruined. If while on the wheel of life, men and nations fight against God's will, guess what? The breaking process follows. And you know what? When we go through this breaking process, it is never an enjoyable experience, either for the potter or the clay. God doesn't take joy in breaking us and tearing us down in order to build us up and, 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 and make us to, to fulfill the purpose for which He's planned for us. Even though there's still some hope in the fact that another vessel can be formed, it doesn't take away the harshness of the judgment now. And then, and then after refinement, after God does what He wants to do and He refines the clay, there comes the moment of reshaping that clay into another vessel according to what the potter seems is good. And now here, notice at what the potter did. He was fashioning a vessel. He says, and, and, and Jeremiah said, it became marred or ruined in his hands. That is, the vessel would not submit to God. It would not submit to what God wanted to do with that vessel. The clay has to be just the right texture. Maybe the clay was too hard. Maybe it was too soft. So God had to lay it aside. You know, many times He does that. If we're not the right texture, if we're too hard or too soft, and and, and we're not working according to God, guess what? He'll lay us aside. He'll put us on the shelf. He'll put us on the shelf because we're we're unusable. And then later on, He picks it up and He makes it into another vessel. Look at verses 7 through 10. The instant I speak... Concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy it. If that nation against whom I have spoken, notice, turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I said I would benefit it. So the Lord gives two scenarios here that illustrated His sovereign power over nations. He says, if I threaten to judge a nation, all right, if I threaten to judge a nation and the nation repents because of the the threat that I've given, He says, then I'll back off and I won't send the judgment. He did this with Nineveh when Jonah's preaching brought the city to repentance in Jonah chapter 3. God says, but here's the other side of the coin. If I promise to bless a nation like I did Israel in our covenants, and that that nation did evil in his sight, then he could hold back the blessing and send the judgment instead. You see, God doesn't change who he is because of who we are or what we do or don't do. God does not change his character nor needs to apologize for what he does. You see, he has the sovereign freedom to change his actions depending on the way people respond to him. 
And there's no doubt that there are still a lot of questions involved in the relationship between the divine sovereignty of God and human responsibility. God has his part in this relationship. We have our part in this relationship. But here's the thing. We don't have to be able to explain and understand the will of God before we can obey it. Because we live by God's promises and his instruction. We don't live by spiritual explanations. And you know what? God is not obligated to tell us anything. God isn't obligated to explain anything to me. And if he did, it would probably be way over my head. And I wouldn't understand it anyway. In Deuteronomy 29, 29, listen to what it says. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. So the secret things of God, they belong to Him. There are things that that He can't tell us because we just, in the infinite wisdom of God, we wouldn't understand it. But He reveals things to us and those things that He reveals to us, they belong to us and to our children that we may obey all the words of His law. You see, there are secrets that the Lord your God hasn't told us. He hasn't revealed them to us. But these words that He has revealed to us and are for us and our children to obey forever. And Jesus promised, see, here's the thing too, if, if we don't obey what He tells us, why should He tell us anymore? Jesus promised that if we obey what we do know, God will, be, God will reveal more of His truth to us. In John 7, 17, He tells us that. But you see, the problem with a lot of people is they're more interested in what God hasn't told us than what He has told us. And we get fixated on what we don't know. Instead of looking at what we do know and just standing upon what we do know. If it was the law alone, if it was God's Word alone, that if that was the way that God operated, it, it, again, if he operated on, on just on his law, we would be, we'd be wiped out. We would have been wiped out a long time ago because man is always breaking God's law. There would be no revelation. There'd be no sacrifice for sin. There'd be no priests, no prophets, no preaching, no repentance, no temple, no prayers. If men were judged, judged strictly by the law, by obeying the law, Nobody would survive. Verses 11 through 17. Now, therefore, speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning a disaster and devising a plan against you. Return now every one from his evil way and make your your ways and your doings good. And listen listen to what the people, uh, how he responded, how they responded to God. They said, that is hopeless. So we will walk according to our own plans and we will everyone obey the dictates of his evil heart. Now God responds to that answer. Therefore, thus says the Lord, ask how among the Gentiles who has heard such things? The virgin of Israel has done a very horrible thing. Will a man leave the snow water of Lebanon, which comes from the rock of the field? Will the cold flowing waters be forsaken for strange waters? Because my people have forgotten me, they have burned incense to worthless idols, and they have caused themselves to stumble in their ways from the ancient paths. 
to walk in pathways and not on a, path, on a highway, to make their land desolate and a perpetual hissing. Everyone who passes by it will be astonished and shake his head. I will scatter them as, as with an east wind before the enemy. I will show them the back and not the face in the day of their calamity. Even though God offered to spare the nation, if they changed their immoral behavior and they repented, the people scornfully replied to them, to God in verse 12. They, they, they scornfully replied to God's third of Jeff. They said, look, speaking to God, God, don't waste your breath. We're just going to keep on living the way we want to, stubbornly following our own evil desires. They were saying, if the only way we can be delivered for judgment means having to turn from our evil ways, and even though we might even give up hope of ever being delivered, we are determined to walk after our own desires and our own evil plans. Can you imagine? You know, our society thinks of assertiveness, thinks highly of assertiveness and independence and defiance of authority. But in a relationship with God, these qualities become stubbornness, self-importance, and refusal to listen or change. And if we don't think this kind of attitude, this stubbornness becomes a way of life that's hostile to God. If we, change, if we don't change that, that attitude of hostility towards God, it becomes a way of life. So the people are telling God, who offered them to repent, and if you do, I won't bring the judgment. They said, there's no use in the prophets telling us any more about repentance. There's no, no use in the prophets telling any more or, or trying to influence us anymore. Or to pursue the matter any further. We're going to do what we want to do. No matter what the consequences are. He said, they said everyone will do whatever wicked thing. Comes out of their own evil heart. And God's laws are not going to stop us. That sounds so much like people today. People of the world. We're going to do. Nobody can tell us what to do. We're going to do what we want to do. You see, the thing that ruins people's lives today is to live as they choose. Now, they call it freedom. You see, they think we're in bondage because we're Christians. And they think they're living the free life and don't know they're enslaved to sin. They call it freedom to live with no restrictions, no boundaries. But for a man to be a slave to his lust is the worst kind of slavery. And, And this shows you how off the wall, how bizarre some men's hearts can get and are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so that they won't so much as even think about changing. They just deliberately set themselves against God. And they say, we are going to go on with our own plans and we're going to let God go on with His and we'll take our chances. And then God gets to a point where He says, Okay, I've heard enough. So he rebukes them, and he tells them how extremely foolish they are being, and how foolish to hold on to their stubborn position and, and, and hating to be changed. And for them trying to be so rational, thinking they're so wise, they were acting really super irrational. 
Paul said in Romans 1.22, professing to be wise, they became fools. And that's the world today. That's exactly the world today. Thinking they're so wise, they are such big fools. Look at verse 13. Back again at verse 13. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Ask now among the Gentiles, Who has heard such things? The virgin of Israel has done a very horrible thing. God is saying, you know, in the offer that he gave them and then the response that they gave back to God, he says, has anybody ever heard of such a thing? Such a foolish thing. Even among the pagan nations. He says, my virgin daughter Israel has done something terrible. Now, when the Ninevites were warned by Jonah, they repented. They turned away from their evil ways. Some of the worst of men, when they're told about their faults, especially when they start to suffer because of their faults, they'll at least promise to change and say that they'll try to change. Okay, I'll try to do better. But God says even his people here deliberately deliberately disobeyed the call to repent. And he said they're determined to continue to be disobedient no matter what their conscience said. And what God said to the contrary... He says, so what they did was a horrible thing. Israel should have kept herself pure and faithful for God, who had married her to himself. But she separated herself from him, and she refuses to go back to him. And remember this. It's a horrible thing for those who have made their condition bad by sinning. But then they make it hopeless by refusing to change. Willful repentance is the most blatant spiritual suicide and a horrible thing. And then in verses 14 and 15, he shows their foolishness in two things. Look at verse 14. Again, here's the example of how they show their foolishness. He uses this example. Will a man leave the snow water of Lebanon, which comes from the rock of the field? Will the cold flowing waters be forsaken for strange waters? So he uses nature. In the nature of the sin they were guilty of, they left God for idols. The most horrible thing they could do because they dangerously cheated themselves. So he says there in verse 14, he says, does the snow ever disappear from the mountaintops of, of Lebanon? The answer is no. He says, do the cold streams flowing from those distant mountains ever run dry? No. So the example, he says, would a hot and thirsty traveler pass by these old crystal streams? Would he pass by them thinking, I'll find better water somewhere else? No way. Because when men are thirsty and they find cool, refreshing streams, they're going to drink from them. They're not going to pass by them, hoping to find something better further down the road. Men know when they're well off. So they won't leave a sure thing for an unsure thing. And here's the second example in verse 15. He says, Because my people have forgotten me, they have burned incense to worthless gods, and they have caused themselves to stumble in their ways from the ancient paths to walk in pathways and not on a highway. This means, because he says, My people have forgotten me, this means they've quit drinking from the fountain of living waters to drink from broken cisterns or broken wells. They're muddy. They're muddy, stagnant pools. They've burnt incense to idols that are useless and hopeless. The idols can't do what they say they can do. 
And even their leaders, the people's leaders, caused them to wander from the right path, and they were happy to be misled. And he says, they left the ancient paths, the old path, the good path, the righteous path that were laid out by God's law. Paths that were walked on by all the saints of old, their forefathers. But when they were advised to keep the good old way, they positively said, we will not walk in it. They chose other paths. They didn't choose to walk on the king's highway where the road was safe and where that road would lead them to their desired end. But they took a road that could only make them stumble, which was the road or the way of idolatry, which was a false way. And it's a way full of stumbling blocks. And yet this is the way that they chose to walk in and to lead others in. Look at verse 16. And doing all of this to make their land desolate and a perpetual hissing, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and shake his head. Verse 16 is telling us about the results of choosing to walk the wrong path. He says their land's going to become desolate. It's going to become a monument to their stupidity. Just lot like, wife, lot like Lot's wife when God says, don't look back. She looked back, turned her into a pillar of salt. And there she stood as a monument to her disobedience and stupidity. And all who pass by will be astonished and shake their heads in amazement. Why? Because they wouldn't repent. God had to chasten them. And this meant that their land would be ruined and the people would go into exile. They'd be in captivity. Instead of God's face shining on them, instead of God blessing them, God would turn His back on them and let them do their own thing. And this is another important thing to remember. The worst kind of judgment is for God to let you have your way. For God to let you do your own thing. Because again, he will come to a point where he says, that's what you want, have at it. Think of what would happen if you allowed your children to do what they wanted to do. When they reach for a sharp object or to put their hand you know, on a heater. That's what you want, go for it. They'd be severely injured. Paul said in Romans 1, Although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Okay, therefore, before they, you know, because they didn't glorify God, and they weren't thankful, and they had futile thoughts, foolish hearts were darkened, and they thought they were, they were wise, they became fools. And as a result, God says, you know, God says, God also gave them up. Notice, He gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts. He says, and God gave them up to vile passions. They didn't like to retain God in their knowledge and gave them up over to a debased mind to do things which are not fitting. Three times, it says, God gave them up. There comes a time when you say, Lord, don't bother me anymore. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to do, have my own way. I'm going to walk my own path. God says, okay, 
And he just gives you up to do what you want to do. And you end up with those wicked thoughts and those, those things which are not fitting. You follow the lusts of your heart, the desires, the cravings of your heart to vile passions. And you get caught up in some of the most horrid things. But God's tried to warn them. Verse 17. He says, I will scatter them as, as with an east wind before the enemy. I will show them, notice, the back and not the face in the day of their calamity. Not only, will they tur- not, not only will they run from their enemy, God says, but they'll be scattered in all different directions. And the thing that will make their, their, their misery even worse, God says, I will turn my back on them and refuse to notice their distress. You see, when we get so caught up, like, we, like Paul said about in our vile passions and the darkness of our heart and the wicked thoughts that we have and, and the craving, he says, and, and, we, and, it, and it ends up getting to us and we end up suffering because of the, our, our stupid choices, our evil choices. God says, when you, when you begin to suffer and, and go into distress and misery because of the choices that you make, I'll turn my back on you in your distress. Our troubles are a lot easier to deal with sometimes when God is looking at us and he's smiling at us and when we can see his face and when he shows us his favor. But if he's turned his back on us and he shows us he's not pleased and he doesn't hear our prayers and he won't help us and he forsakes us and he leaves us to ourselves and stands far away from us, we're done. We're done. God was going to deal with them the way they dealt with him. They turned their back on me, God says. I will turn my back on them. Verse 18. Then they said, come and let us devise plans against Jeremiah. Notice. For the law shall not perish from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. Come and let us attack him with the tongue. Notice they're going to attack him with the tongue. The tongue, like James said, it can be used like a sword, like a weapon. They're going to attack him with the tongue and let us not give heed to any of his words. Let us not listen to word Jeremiah says. The people said here, come on, let's, let, let's, let's conspire. Let, let's, let's get together and, and, and plot a way to stop Jeremiah. We have plenty of priests. We have plenty of wise men. We have plenty of prophets. We don't need Jeremiah to teach us the word of God. We don't need Jeremiah to, to give advice and to give us prophecies. They said, let's... let's Let's slander him. Let's spread rumors about him. Let's ruin his reputation. Let's ignore what Jeremiah has to say. Proud sinners don't like hearing about God's sovereignty, that he is in control, and that, 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 that you know, we are accountable to him. They don't like to hear the threat of coming judgment. You see, they, they think that if they can silence you, God's messengers, that they'll silence the Lord. And yet the psalmist said in Psalm 2, 4, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. But in verse 18, here was their argument. We have plenty of prophets. We have plenty of priests. We have plenty of elders. We don't need Jeremiah. And this wasn't the first time that Jeremiah had gone through a conspiracy that threatened his ministry and his life. And it wouldn't be the last time. His enemies plotted to destroy his character, to slander him, to smear him. 
They said, come on, man, let's, let's start spreading a bunch of lies about Jeremiah. Faithful servants of God do not enjoy opposition. They learn to accept it. And they don't run from it. And Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know it hated me before it hated you. John 15, 18. Let's close with verses 19 through 23. Give heed to me, O Lord, and listen to the voice of those who contend with me. Shall evil be repaid for good? For they have dug a pit for my life. Remember, Lord, that I stood before you to speak good for them, to turn away your wrath from them. Therefore, deliver up their children to the famine and pour out their blood by the force of the sword. Let their wives become widows and bereaved of their children. Let their men be put to death, their young men be slain by the sword in battle. I mean, Jeremiah's coming really down hard on the people. He's calling for some really, um, you know, just some, some bad stuff here to happen to all, to all these people. Verse 22, let a cry be heard from their houses when you bring a troop suddenly upon them, for they have dug a pit to take me. And, and he says, for they have dug a pit to take me and hidden snares for my feet. Verse 23, yet, Lord, you know all their counsel, which is against me to slay me. Provide no atonement for their iniquity, nor blot out their sins from your sight, but let them be overthrown before you and deal thus with them in the time of your anger. This is Jeremiah's fifth of six personal complaints that he made to the Lord about his situation and about his ministry. His words might seem really harsh to us. As I said, you know, he's, he's calling for the, the parents to be bereaved of their children, let them be killed by the sword, and let, you know, just some really cruel things, barbaric things. You know, again, and his, his words seem really harsh to us and, and not at all in the spirit of Jesus Christ. But you have to remember, Jeremiah was a divinely appointed prophet who represented God to the nation. And those who opposed Jeremiah were opposing God. And Jeremiah was asking God to deal with them. Like Elijah and all the other prophets, Jeremiah was a man, James says, who, has, who was subject to like passions as we are. And boy, sometimes I think of what I wish God would do to people. Not actually in a very, you know, kind of like, you know, Jeremiah. But again... James said, you know, our, our, they had the same kind of passions we do and vice versa. In other words, we have a nature like, you know, we, we have a nature like, uh, uh, with a nature like ours that, that, that they had. They had a nature just like ours. And Jeremiah was feeling a lot of pain because the leaders rejected the truth. And, and, and think about it. That if you and I were attacked by enemies who really hated us, and they lied about us. They slandered us. They ruined our reputation. They set traps for us. They dug pits for us. We might get a little upset. And we'd probably ask God to deal with them. The way Jeremiah is asking God to deal with them here. At least Jeremiah spoke honestly to God. And he left the matter with God. He needed to remember God's promises when, he, when God called him. Back in chapter 1. And he had to rest in the assurance that the Lord would see him through. Listen to what he told Jeremiah in chapter 1, verses 17 through 19, when God called him into the ministry. 
He told Jeremiah, Therefore prepare yourself and arise and speak to them all that I command you. He said, notice Jeremiah, Do not be dismayed before their faces, lest I dismiss, dismay you before them. For behold, I have made you this day a fortified city and an iron pillar and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, against its princes, against its priests, and against the people of the land. They will fight against you, Jeremiah, but they shall not prevail against you because I am with you, says the Lord, to deliver you. Jeremiah, they're going to come against you, man. They're going to, don't, don't be, don't be, bummed out by, by the, the, the way they look and the, their, their facial expressions when you, t- when you tell them the message that I have for them. He says, the priests, the kings, everybody in the land, the princes, they're all going to come against you. They're going to fight against you, but, but they're not going to win. Why? Because I'm with you, Jeremiah. I'm with you. I'm going to deliver you. Now, there's a righteous indignation, a righteous anger against sin. That's acceptable to God. Paul said, be angry and do not sin. He says, don't let the sun go down while you're still angry because anger gives a foothold to the devil. Remember, Jesus got angry. But here's the thing. This is, this is what righteous anger is. It's, it's getting angry at something, someone, not because of what they've said or done to you, but because of what they've done to fellow man. That's when Jesus got angry. Because it says when Jesus was threatened and he was reviled and he was this, and they came against him, it says he never, he never threatened back. He never reviled back. He committed himself to his Father who judges righteously. Jesus was angry, remember, when his critics hardened their hearts opposing his word? the Jewish leaders, the people. Paul was angry because of people who said they were believers, but who were leading others astray. You see, there's why he was angry. They were leading others astray, and Paul knew what that would happen to him eternally. Paul said in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty nine, who is led astray, and do, not, and do I not burn with anger? We read about Jesus in John chapter 2, verses 14 and 16. In the, remember, in the temple area, it says Jesus saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. It said Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and the cattle. He scattered the money changers. The coin, they, he scattered their, cha- their coins all over the floor. He turned over their tables. And then going over to the people who sold the doves, he told them, get these things out of here and stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. That's what he was angry about. Those people who were selling, uh, uh, they, they, they look at the people's sacrifice, they, they inspect the sacrifice, and it was to be perfect. There could be no blemish, they couldn't be sick, they couldn't be weak, there couldn't be no sign of anything wrong with it. And yet the, those, those, those that, that were inspecting the, the, the animals, they go, oh no, this one's got a cold, or this one's got, got a, a, a sore, so no, you've got to buy one of ours. And they, they charge them an exorbitant price. Or the money changers. The people would come from out of town. They had their currency that had to be exchanged there. And then they'd give them less for what their money was worth. They were, they were just, they were doing business. And Jesus saw how they were ripping off the people. That's what he was angry about. It wasn't anything that was done toward him. 
And he ran them out. Stop doing this. Get out of here with that stuff. Because, you see, unrighteous anger, that's the anger that comes from our flesh because it's, because I was offended or, or something happened to me that I didn't like. Unrighteous angers will take matters into its own hands and that's when it gets ugly. And that's when we act ugly and ungodly. And we try to destroy the one who's offended us. And James said it very well in chapter 1, verse 20. He says, human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. And that is, it's hard to, to be a good witness when your flesh is overcome by anger and you're yelling and screaming and wanting to punch somebody in the nose. <laughs> but righteous anger turns the matter over to God and tries to help the other one who's been offended. Pain is anger plus love. And it's not easy to keep that holy balance. And if Jeremiah seems to be too angry to us, maybe it's because some of us today aren't angry enough at the evil in this world. The psalmist said in Psalm 97.10, You who love the Lord hate evil. Hate evil. There's no compromise. You cannot say you love God and not hate evil. Paul said in Romans 12, 9, hate evil and stand on the side of good. And this is a good thing for people to put above their, their ballots when they vote. Hate evil and stand on the side of good. That's what's going to change this world when we hate evil and we stand on the side of good and we love what's right. Maybe it's because we watch so much violence and, and, and sin that we've become desensitized to it. And we tend to accept it as nor, a normal part of life and we don't want to do anything about it. Evangelizing today has given in to compromising. More churches being acceptive of, of, of what's going on in the world and, and, and becoming politically correct and using the right words to say. And to be uncompromising or critical of ideas that are definitely unbiblical. Those things that the world are saying are okay and those things that, that, that the world is passing to be legal and, 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 and right by the world's standards, they may be legal and they be, might, might be right in the eyes of the people but not biblical and acceptable to God. You see, as Christians, we live by a higher standard. We need to say it, and we need to live it. If this society, the way it is, is going to change. We have the message. We have the means. But if we don't stand for it, if we don't stand by the side of good, and let people know, we're just as at fault because we don't say anything. 
Father, we come before you and we just thank you for your word, Lord. Lord, may your spirit convict us, God. May he rebuke us, Lord. Father, if we're compromising, Father, if we're, if we're, we're, if we're accepting, God, the ways of this world, Father, if we're falling in line with what they tell us to say and, to, and, and what we can't say, God. Lord, then we're no any, not any different than the people of the world, God. We are called to be different. We're called to stand out, God. We're called to stand up and to not give up and to walk those old ancient paths of God's highway. Jesus said that narrow road. He said, and very few find it. But the road to destruction is very wide. And many, many go there. Lord, lead us in that narrow road and, and help us not to turn to the left or to the right but to keep our eyes straight ahead and not look back. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Sunday morning, we're going to begin 2 Corinthians. We finished uh, 1 Corinthians last Sunday.